At this time, it's my pleasure to introduce our next panel. Uh, at first, I'd like to invite to the stage Dick Fadden, the former head of CSIS, uh, Fen Hampson, Chancellor's Professor at Carleton University and co-author of Looks, Look Who's Watching Surveillance, Treachery and Trust Online, and our moderator, an investigative reporter with the National Observer and leading the Election Integrity Reporting Project, Emma McIntosh. Thank you very much. Well, I'm really excited that we have so many people here who want to talk about foreign interference. So, we know thanks to the fabulous panelists who've already been up here and the fabulous speakers that Canada is you know, at, at risk of foreign interference, that's a given. Um, I guess what we're here to talk about is what that looks like, how much of a risk it is, and, and how we can prevent it as much as possible. So I guess I wanted to start off with a quick um, threat assessment of sorts. Uh, Fen, do you want to start and just tell me where the threats are coming from right now? And you know what, what do they look like? We heard a lot about misinformation on the other panel. And misinformation uh, can come from both inside a country and also outside a country. Uh, I dare say my co-panelist is much better qualified to talk about the external threats. I don't know if he's under a gag order or not, but, uh, <laughs> but um, uh, we do know uh, that uh, Russia uh, has been actively involved in misinformation campaigns uh, on social media and other forms of media in Canada. Uh, China as well. They're probably the two biggest external manipulators, shall we say. Um, but we also have internal sources. And there's actually an interaction effect between the two. That the more polarized debates become on social media, since that's what we're talking about here, the more that cre creates an avenue for external actors to play on people's fears and hopes. Okay, so, so maybe Dick, you can help us. Are we talking troll bots on Twitter? Are we talking about fake news stories? Walk us through it. So let me start by saying that while we're very preoccupied about foreign interference in our elections now, we need to remember this has been going on for a very long time. You know, I was uh, six or seven months ago, I Googled foreign interference in elections, and you'd be surprised the country uh, that has been most involved in this activity uh, is the country to our south. You know, after World War II, the West generally, including Canada, made a real effort to try and prevent communist parties from forming governments in, in Europe. So why all of a sudden are we so excited about this? And I think part of the reason was discussed a few minutes ago. It's because of the presence of the World Wide Web. All of a sudden, it's a lot easier. But I just want to make the point, it's not the first time this has happened, so having said that, uh, one of the things I learned, deduced, sort of came to me by osmosis uh, in my last couple of jobs in government was we really don't have any privacy. You know, we really, really don't. You have to make a significant effort to protect your communications, to make sure that what you're getting hasn't been altered. 
Um, and part of the problem, or part of the issue here is, Canada and the West have been fighting for the last 10 years to protect the integrity of the World Wide Web, to prevent people from it, regulating it and legislating it. So there's a real dilemma here about whether or not we go the route of, say, China, for example. They've basically created their own internet, uh, which is separate from the one that we use. So before I get into some of the details you've asked me to get into, I think it's important to realize that there's a real balancing act here that was touched upon in the second panel ago, two panels ago, about whether or not we're going to regulate the World Wide Web in any shape, way, or fashion, or whether we're just going to tolerate it and expect that we're going to be able to deduce what's false information. And I think we need to think about this. Uh, the, um, the things that were mentioned in the last panel by our, our visitor from Toronto, I think it's, it's very true what he said. I don't think it was false information at all. It was true. But, you know, there's a rule now that says that uh, foreign parties can't fund Canadian elections. I'm sim oversimplifying it. There's no way that we're going to know this happen if this happens. Uh, two or three elections ago, when I was still working, uh, we actually asked Foreign Affairs, as it was then called, to remind embassies in Ottawa not to become involved in our elections because there are all sorts of examples of their doing it. They have a lot of money. If they choose to intervene, they can do it. So that's, I'm trying to paint a story here. It's not just the World Wide Web. It's money, it's talking to people, and it's threatening people. So let me try and answer your question more directly. I just wanted to try and paint this um, issue. It's not simple. If this were simple, we would not be here. Most of the issues are pretty gray. So how do they do things? You have uh, social media. Uh, it's very easy to modify what's on social media if you really put your mind to it. It's very easy to put false information on, on, on social media. The most effective way I discovered for uh, a bad guy to get false information out is to take a recognized and respected site and modify it. And that's in fact what the Russians did a little bit in the US presidential election. But if you have a site you really respect and you're good enough to get in there and modify it effectively, subtly, and with sophistication, you are laughing. Now whether or not you use bots or any number of other issues doesn't really matter. What really matters in the end is what, whether what you are reading is what started off uh, with the author or whether it was changed somewhere between then and it, when it reaches your eyes. And there are any number of ways of doing that. And part of the difficulty in dealing with foreign interference is that uh, our law prohibits it, Western law generally prohibits it. But to use an old spy's expression, you can have 37 cutouts. You know, you can have somebody in Vladivostok doing this and it can go through four, five, six, seven, eight countries by the time the effect is felt in Canada. Proving this to the level of the criminal law is virtually impossible. Just convincing ourselves that it's happening is equally very difficult. So what I'm trying to suggest is anything that touches the World Wide Web in any shape, way, or fashion is susceptible of conveying false information, and it probably has been used at one time or other. And when you talk about altering the information, do you mean um, false news stories? Do you mean... Uh, for instance, the other day I found this fake site that co-opted the Toronto Star logo to uh, hawk Bitcoin stuff. Is, is that kind of what you're talking no, about? No, it's that sort of thing. Or if you have a very respected think tank, which puts out really balanced, respected views on public policy issues. And, you just, and it's an issue, though, on the other hand, that's quite controversial. You know, people are attacking one another on it. And you modify what's, what's in there in order to just provoke public debate, in order to enrage people, to promote polarization of our politics, that sort of thing. 
Okay, that's actually a really good point because um, the goal of this kind of uh, disinformation campaign is something I think we should be clear about. What is the goal? What are they trying to do? What are they trying to achieve? Ben, do you want to take this one? Well, the question is who is they, mm. right? Right. Um, if we're talking about external actors, and I gave an example of two countries that are uh, into this in a big way, I think you could say that authoritarian regimes are interested in disrupting dis democracies. And we've seen or heard stories of the Russians, for example, uh, getting involved in the whole Brexit con controversy in the United Kingdom. Right, I right. Think and it's, we, I, sorry and to interrupt you, I yeah. just want to add, we saw that in Canada as well, right? CBC did extensive reporting on um, Russian troll bots stoking debate on both sides of uh, the pipeline issue. Yeah, we've seen it on pipelines. We've seen it uh, when uh, uh, there's a shooting episode on Danforth uh, Avenue in Toronto. Uh, the manipulation that uh, is taking place isn't just confined to elections, right? I know we're focused on the election, but it's happening all the time. And it's intended, and uh, Dick talked about it. I mean, there's nothing new here. It's just that our adversaries are using modern tools, modern forms of communication, and they do have an advantage because of both the scale and speed of social media and internet-based platforms. You can reach a much wider audience much more quickly, and quite frankly, by the time those who are saying, hey, wait a minute, that's not true, you know, 240,000 Canadians have read the story, right? And they've drawn their own conclusions. Right, and that, that makes sense because we've seen studies that have shown that um, a lot of people see fake news, or sorry, junk news. Um, I don't like the word fake news either. <laughs> and very few people see the fact check. And so it, it kind of makes um, the, the false narrative more powerful, right? It does make the false narrative more powerful. But, you know, before we all get doom and gloom and or believe that uh, democracy is uh, about to collapse, um, I think, you know, take a second look. Uh, one of the things uh, that we were doing uh, at CG and have been doing uh, for five years now, ha have been doing uh, annual surveys of public attitudes, including in Canada, towards the internet, and towards social media. And as the previous speaker talked about, trust is important, but guess what? The majority of Canadians don't trust the internet. The majority of Canadians, in very large numbers, don't trust social media. And they're also taking measures to, uh, shall we say, uh, obviously figure out if what they're reading is true or not. I mean, what we found in the last survey we undertook was that 94% of Canadians uh, indicated that they had uh, been exposed to uh, fake news online. And uh, we didn't define fake news for them, but they obviously have a sense of what it is, and so they're aware. And, and I think that you know, the good news is, is that we do have an educated populace. Um, to be sure, there are those who 
will believe whatever they want to believe online. That's true of older people. It's true of senior citizens. I guess I fall in that category. But um, that's a joke, by the way. Uh, and I am a senior citizen. But, I don't but, think you want to know how old I am. But, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but the populace is skeptical. And there is a good news story in some of the polling that we've been doing. Can I, can I just sort of say, I think Fenn is the optimist on this issue on the panel. Um, I can't contest his polling, but I also think that it's very easy in a period of intense debate, particularly when people tend to, to look at reinforcing news, reinforcing information, to send people down the wrong path. If I can also just make the point, I think we have to remember that the objective of Russia and China, the two countries that Fenn mentioned, their objective is not to change the outcome of our election. I mean, anybody who thinks that is wrong, they have no expectation whatsoever. They really had no expectation of changing the outcome of the US presidential election. What they're trying to do is to weaken our respect for institutions, to sow, dis to sow dissension, to promote polarization. I think it's important to remember that they're doing this in a variety of ways. They're very unhappy with their situation on the planet right now. They want to change it. They want to improve their situation. Their main target is the United States, but we're caught in that along with a bunch of other Western countries. And the bad news is, though, <clears throat> that they are not limited by law. They're not limited by restrict, uh, limits in resources. They're not limited in the number of people they can apply to this. And I really agree with Fenn when he says, this is not just during elections. So this is something that's an evergreen, ongoing issue that we're going to have to deal with. And I'm sorry if I'm being slightly pessimistic, but I think we, need to, we still need to worry about the number of Canadians who will go off on a tangent because of some fake news. And if nothing else, you know, if you use an analogy from the world of medicine, you have curative medicine and preventative medicine, I'd rather spend a bit of effort on the prevention side than have to cure things if they go bad. Now, I don't go so far as to suggest that we need to start monitoring or um, censoring uh, the internet, but there are a whole bunch of other things that we can do, some of which we've started doing, but the biggest, most important thing we can do is to use our brains. And a lot of people, uh, in my experience, and we did a lot of polling on national security issues when I was still working, and part of the issue in Canada is people don't think about these things very much. We really don't. Um, you know, I was saying to Emma earlier, part of our problem in Canada is we don't particularly feel threatened for a variety of reasons. So we don't think we're as susceptible of foreign in influence in any number of other countries. If you don't feel threatened, you don't think about it, you don't worry about it, and I think there's a possibility that might have a greater effect than it would have otherwise. Just on that point, uh, there was a very prominent Canadian journalist who wrote an article a couple of months ago uh, that essentially said, you know, foreign countries really aren't interested in what's going on mm -hmm. in Canada. And, and was very glib about it. And I think that's, that underscores the point that Dick was mating, making, is that we are complacent. And uh, we assume that because we're nice, because we're not imperial powers, that you know, nobody has it in for us. Well, think again. Think of the disinformation campaign that the Russians launched against our troops who were in Latvia, mm -hmm. where they were propagating all kinds of stories about, you know, our troops were raping uh, uh, and pillaging and the local populace. And, and it was a very systematic campaign to uh, 
really undermined support for our military who were uh, positioned in, in Latvia as part of a major NATO operation. So and to draw a wedge between NATO exactly. allies. That's one of the main objectives, exactly. wedge between countries. Exactly. So complacency is a big problem. Right. So I want to know more about your thought process then for how people should be approaching these things. Let's take a recent example. Um, so earlier this month, this story came out in the Jerusalem Post uh, claiming that Canada was going to take in 100,000 Palestinian refugees and this was this clandestine deal. Um, and their lone source was this, I think, Lebanese newspaper. Um, and the whole thing seemed a bit weird, but it, it just spread like wildfire. Um, and for the record, we don't know for a fact that there was any kind of you know, nefarious intent behind that story, but you see something like that and it has since been proven false. What do you do? How do you think about it? Where do you go? Well, I think you have to go to multiple sources, and that's one of the worries that I have. I'm involved with uh, the Digital Democracy Project of the Public Policy Forum, and they've done a variety of surveys on this relating to, to uh, issue, electoral issues. And it's been confirmed again and again that people tend to look to information that confirms their views, uh, both on policy, political, and other issues. So if you hear something that doesn't really resonate, you've got to go outside your box. You've got to look somewhere else. Uh, I think we don't do that enough. Um, some people you know, spend their entire days looking at a multiplicity of news sources, but most people don't. Uh, part of the survey that I'm referring to suggested that particularly people who are active in politics, by and large, I'm generalizing, look at one source of news and it usually is a source of news that reinforces their views. So I don't know if that would apply more generally to the population, but the key is multiple sources. Um, and I think the media here actually have a responsibility. I mean, I, I don't know if the Globe and Mail or the National Post pick up, picked up this story, but if they did, they certainly should have had a few question marks in the story. And I think our media does this sometimes, but they don't do it all the time. So I think the media has a responsibility as much as governments academics, and you know, all of us as part of the population. You know, it's really interesting that you bring that up because um, one of the main sources that spread that story was a Toronto Sun reporter who tweeted it out uncritically, mm. and then a couple, like a little while later went, oh, the government says that's false, sorry, um, which you know, got about a quarter of the traffic. Um, so I guess with, with these disinformation attempts, um, I don't know about you guys, I often feel like it's this big cloud kind of hovering above us, and it, it's kind of shapeless and formless and just feels scary. Um, and a lot of the time, it's hard to gauge the impact. So I, how many of you feel that way? Anyone? Yeah, me. Um, how do you measure the impact, and is it working? Very hard to measure, actually. Um, there are uh, groups like the um, Oxford Internet Lab, uh, there's the uh, uh, We Have Citizen Lab, actually, here mm. in Canada. Um, uh, there's the Media Lab at MIT. And um, they have been uh, doing studies. I think probably Oxford has been doing the best work on this. I say that because a former uh, researcher is, is one of the leads on that, uh, who used to work at CG. So I'm a little biased there. but. Um, but what they've found is that, sort of going back several years, is that there is more disinformation 
that is coming across social media, that is coming from external sources, including the countries that I just mentioned, and it is affecting more and more countries around the globe. So the problem is getting bigger. It is not a uniquely Canadian problem. We like to navel gaze on these issues, but it is a global problem. And in some ways that does require, I think, a global approach, certainly among like-minded democracies, to take this issue seriously. Now, the G7 summit that was held in Canada began to try to develop some norms. Dick, you might want to talk a, a bit about that, uh, uh, around promoting greater cooperation. Um, our intelligence agencies and the Five Eyes uh, obviously cooperate on this. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, there are some things that you can do. One is to do a better job of calling out the perpetrators. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean external perpetrators, right? So when there's compelling evidence that the Russians are launching a major disinformation campaign, we should publicly, and our government should publicly call them out. And we do have a mechanism, actually, through uh, that was uh, set up recently. It obviously, it's not going to be the prime minister in, a, in, a, in an election campaign, but there is a senior group of civil servants who certainly would be in a position to be able to do that. The other thing I think we could do is to be more effective in using some of the new technologies, and there's some Canadian firms that have the artificial intelligence capability in more or less real time to be able to uh, see disinformation campaigns and where they're coming from across open social media, uh, Twitter, for example. And I think it would be great if we had a site, a curated site, not run by the government, but obviously supported by uh, you know, multi-stakeholder sources of funding so that you could actually go and see on any given issue what's happening. Um, because you can actually track this stuff. Um, you don't have to do it backwards now. You can actually do it more or less in real time. So there, there, there are ways to sensitize the public in terms of what's happening and who's doing it. Can I just, I agree with that, uh, but one of my, my hobby horses in dealing with you know, these issues is that we sometimes forget about the context. Now, I, I agree with Ben that if we have a clear, unambiguous case of country X mucking about in our elections, we should say something. But, you know, if I were in my, my last job, I wasn't only director of CSIS, I did other things. I was the national security advisor, and I was being, being asked to advise the prime minister. We've, we have an example of China, for, which is more important for us, doing this. And I know that we're desperate for more trade, more investment, more tourism with China. It affects thousands of jobs. Uh, it complicates a whole raft of relationships. Doesn't matter what I really think. If you're a minister of the crown or the prime minister, you've got to think about all these things. So I think we should do that, speaking as a citizen. I don't know what I would have advised the prime minister if I, would, if I had been asked because you've got to look at these things in a broader context, which is why I think Fenn is absolutely right. Canada qua Canada ain't going to make a lot of progress on this alone. We need to find a way to work 
I'd say primarily with our NATO allies to start with, but even more broadly, we are not going to be effective in dealing with this broadly by doing it alone. It is simply not going to happen. So both of you guys touched on um, some of the new measures that are in place ahead of this election. Um, you talked about the panel, which is active now. Uh, we talked in the first panel about a research done into the Alberta election, uh, which is being done by a group out of Global Affairs. Um, but we've also seen a lot of criticism about how these measures aren't enough. And um, I think we touched on this earlier, was you know the possibility of uh, holding social media companies to account for kind of allowing this stuff to spread. Um, what, what more specifically do you think can be done law-wise, or what more shouldn't be done law-wise? Well, I think it's uh, a very dangerous path to start talking about regulating online content. Um, you know, it was Justice Louis Brandeis of the American Supreme Court who said, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And I think that's true of disinformation or misinformation campaigns. Um, you know, you, you need to kind of take them on. Um, and also, certainly in the case of external interference, point, uh, uh, point, uh, point fingers. Um, I think that there is a business model here that we haven't talked about that is part of the problem. Um, let's face it, the big social media companies are monopolies or certainly oligopolies of information. Mm. And yes, you can find them, but if you're a, a billion dollar approaching a trillion dollar enterprise, you know, the fines that we have in place around hate speech and other kinds of uh, violations of Canadian law you know, that's, that's trivial for these companies. It's absolutely trivial. And the Europeans are discovering that with their own laws, which have pretty draconian fines when it comes to privacy. But still, for the big companies, it's not big money. And I think uh, they do have a responsibility. But then the question is, and, and I pose this as, as a question, do you want some poor, underpaid, relatively speaking, to the CEO of the company, Facebook employee, essentially making decisions about content, online content. Because guess what? That's how they do it when they do takedowns. And that's also true of Twitter, right? So do you want to hand responsibility for censorship over to the corporates? And I think that's, that's, that's a big challenge that we're facing. I mean. Right now, it's, I think it's fair to say the government has taken what's the economists called a nudge approach mm. to social media, which is say, we're not going to regulate you just yet, but you better clean up your act or else, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, start taking measures. And they're, you know, to be fair, they're beginning to take measures. But at the end of the day, their business model thrives on connectedness, on information, misinformation, on emotion, because what is it that drives you to your cell phone? What is it that drives you to Twitter? For academics who get online and become pers personalities 
on Twitter, they play on emotion, right? It's not sharing necessarily the latest research paper. And that's true of anybody who is in this medium. So it's, it's a psychological and business-driven model in a monopoly space that I think at the end of the day, you're going to have to take on the business model if you're going to be tackling some of these issues because they're interconnected. Um, I think that's right. Um, and uh, I think Fenn is arguing for the resurrection of Teddy Roosevelt and the Trust Busters. But I'm going to be the Darth Vader of this, of this panel, big surprise. Um, I think we have to do everything that, that Fenn is talking about, but we're just talking about it right now in the context of foreign interference or interference in our elections. I think this is a minor problem, barely worth talking about. Some of the things that you can find on the internet relating to child pornography, terrorism, international criminal activity make what we're talking about pale. Yet we've done nothing about those other th three or four or five things. In part because we don't talk about it. Uh, it only, went, you know, every now and then a something will blip up. But, you know, if you want to get a sense sometime of how bad these things are, you know, just sit down in front of your computer and put in a few keywords relating to terrorism, child pornography, or something like that. It really is appalling. And the same companies that Fenn is talking about have been saying now for a decade, if not longer, we're going to do something about this. And I think he's right when he argues about the business model. But on the other hand, it's easier said than done. Uh, because the instant some of these things appear on the internet, somebody picks them up and they get redirected. And it just goes on and on and on. So I would argue that as a civilization, if I can put it that way, we have a much more serious problem than just worrying about whether or not the Chinese are going to try and effectively influence the outcome of two constituencies in British Columbia, and more generally try and make us unhappy with one another. So again, I'm not trying to be unduly negative, but we have a real problem with what we're going to do with the World Wide Web. It is beneficial in, wor in ways that we can't even begin to count, but there's some really downsides to it. And how we do it, as Fen was saying a minute ago, without you know, beginning to resemble the Russians and the Chinese, I don't know. If I had the solution to this, I wouldn't be sitting here. I'd be on a luxury yacht in the Mediterranean. Because I don't <laughs> think it's obvious how we're going to do it except talking about it as much as we possibly can and coming up with smaller solutions. So what if we can't figure it out? Um, you know, we've seen in other countries, uh, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, that disinformation has led to violence. Um, we've seen that disinformation can, in particular, stoke anti-immigrant sentiment that can lead to violence. And um, we also know, you know, in a closer to home sense that um, there are a lot of people in Canada who rely on a second language or a, a language that is not English or French and who rely on ethnic media that have been prone to manipulation in the past. Um, so who's affected by this? What happens if we don't fix it? Well, let me just say a couple words, if I could, about the ethnic media in Canada, which we tend, to, we tend to forget about. I mean, just to give you as an example, the Chinese language media in Canada, there are basically two groups, pro-Beijing and anti-Beijing. They hate each other's guts. Uh, and they spend a great deal of time, money, and effort trying to develop stories that will influence the other group. A lot of Chinese Canadians read both in Canada. And they make a real effort you know, to try and 
uh, take basic facts, basic information, and convert them into the kinds of thing they want people to think about. There are a number of other diaspora groups in Canada. Uh, the Iranians come to mind. They also try to do occasionally uh, some influence activities. So I guess um, it's important for us not to just think about you know the National Post, the Globe and Mail, the CTV, and CBC. There are a lot of much, much smaller uh, media outlets in Canada that can be used. And a lot of people in Canada, I think we need to remember, don't live in Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Ottawa. They live in small cities that have one or two newspapers or a radio station. And it's really easy for those people to take what they see on social media, find something about it in their more local newspapers, and go about uh, saying something about it. So. I agree with what Fenn said a minute ago about the need to deal with the, the internet operators. Um, but I also think um, our media have more of a responsibility than we sometimes readily accept. I understand that you know all of these companies, CTV, CBC, Global, whatever, their objective is to make money. Their news, their news uh, sections are separate and they're independent and all that, and we have a variety of newspapers. But, you know, um, uh, the CBC and CTV just set up very recently a small, small units within them to deal with misinformation. I don't understand why this isn't an ongoing issue for them, because it's a real problem in, in, our, in our societies today. So if our mainstream media aren't making this an ongoing, important issue, I think we're going to be behind the eight ball. I mean, we need help from the media. Um, over the years, I've joked with Fenn that I think academe has a real role to play as well, if only they could write in English or French, so that the rest of us could understand them. Um, he doesn't agree with that view. But... Uh, <laughs> oh, yes, I do. <laughs> but there are a variety of things like that that I think we can do, uh, but we, this just isn't a solution to be found in government, and I think we're wrong if we come to that conclusion. There are a whole bunch of components of civil society that have a role to play, and I don't think they're all playing them to the extent they possibly could. I, I'd agree with that, but, but I think um, the world's emerging democracies uh, are much more vulnerable. And the reason I say that is that, um, you know, Canada does have a highly educated population um, now, sometimes educated people, highly educated people, can be a lot more closed-minded than, uh, than uh, ordinary folk, so to speak. Uh, but, but the fact of the matter is, is that we do have a skeptical populace. And they are skeptical, uh, Dick, of uh, social media. Mm. They do uh, have greater faith in what's called the um, legacy media. Uh, again, that uh, is borne out in... Uh, public opinion polling. Uh, I do agree that the legacy media do have uh, uh, major responsibilities in part because they are more trusted. But the sort of kinetic effects of uh, highly adversarial or manipulated social media campaigns, I mean, we, we see that in India, we've seen that in Indonesia, we've seen that in uh, many countries where you don't have uh, uh, as educated a population, um, and where um, 
levels of uh, literacy uh, are much lower, uh, and where there are uh, fewer media sources people can consult. Uh, one of the things that was quite striking uh, when we were doing this uh, survey of global attitudes a number of years ago, we asked people in different countries, uh, what do you think the internet is? And the majority of Indonesians thought the internet was Facebook because that was the app on their cell phone where they were getting most of the information. Um, and they didn't have access to other sources. Now, having said that, we do have multiple sources. I think the previous panel talked about, you know, if you see something that looks a little weird, you can Google it. Um, but you can't force people to Google it. And at the end of the day, people are going to make their own choices. They're going to believe what they want to believe. And in a democracy, we allow people to believe what they want to believe. Was it uh, when you and I were talking last night that um, you mentioned that you know, it, as much as Canada is in good shape ahead of the election, that kind of doesn't absolve us? You know, just because we might be ahead of other countries does not mean that we don't have collective and individual responsibility, right? Yeah, we do, we do have responsibilities. And, and I think, you know, to come back to something uh, both Dick and I have said is that we can't fight this battle alone. We have to start working much more closely with our allies, particularly our NATO allies, on some of these issues. And, and by the way, that goes to calling a country out. There's strength in numbers, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if Canada says, you Chinese, you know, you're subverting our democracy and we have evidence to prove it, we're going to take a hit, no question about it. But if we're doing it with others, we're in a much stronger position, and that message will land in Beijing very differently than if we're doing it alone. And that's true in Moscow as well. Mm -hmm. I think now is the part where we go over to questions. I know we're past five, so thanks to everyone who's sticking around. Um, we've got 10 minutes. Uh, my name is Susie, and um, as a matter of fact, I have a question that, that from the first panel and yourself and your group. Uh, polarization, I think, I feel the impact. I'm old, I'm uh, an immigrant, and uh, I feel the impact of polarization in Canada, in the United States, and in Europe. And uh, uh, if we experience uh, the industrial revolution and the opening of and how Europe has been framed after the industrial revolution and uh, and uh, and uh, dimin the diminish of polarization and now we are coming back to polarization I don't that's the impact I see from the media the impact I see from uh, uh, from uh, uh, just uh, this uh, disinformation. So I wonder how can you elaborate on that? I feel it is a, it is very dangerous, and it is uh, very uh, uh, threatening to us. Oh, well, I agree with you. I think you know if you look at the world generally, I think Canada is fortunate that polarization here is much less than it has been in any number of other countries. What's the old expression? Forewarned is forearmed, and I think we should take advantage of what's happened in other countries and start thinking about it. I think it also demonstrates itself in ultra-partisanship, which is the case in a goodly number of other countries, and we're seeing a bit more, a bit more of that here. Um, 
I think to be aware of it and to think about it and worry about it is the most important thing. But going back to my, uh, to our, you know, the beginnings of our conversation, this is exactly what Russia and China wants to have happen in Western countries. They want us to be more divided. They want us to be polarized. They want us to start doubting our institutions. Um, I think we're very lucky in this country because we've tried through a variety of public policies over the decades to go in the opposite direction. Uh, and I think we should simply admit that it's a possibility and fight it. But on a few, few public policy issues today, to your point, I think we're becoming quite polarized. I mean, climate change and, and the environment. Immigration is becoming to be a major, major issue. And I don't think it would take a heck of a lot to push people into the two extremes. So I think it's a worry. I think we need to take advantage of the fact that we know that it's a problem and work, work on it as much as we can. And here, I think, our political leaders have a real responsibility. You know, it's fine that the likes of all of us can talk about this, but people who have, you know, uh, the public's attention on a day-by-day -day basis, uh, they shouldn't be seeking political advantage. They should be talking about this and using this as one of the devices they can to get themselves elected. We need to fight polarization. And to Fenn's earlier point, the best way to do it is to acknowledge that it's a problem, talk about it, and do something about it. Hello. Um, uh, my name is Hannah. I guess I had a question before. Um, you're, you're talking once again about some kind of global control of the quality of information out there, uh, which I would refer to again as censorship. And in our uh, current situation of globalization, um, I'm thinking once again about the country I come from, where we very heavily relied on information available in our own langu language, it happened, but from outside. Now, should there be a cooperation between uh, our state at the time and all the foreign states? That would have been impossible. You referred to young democracies or reviving democracies or completely new ones. Uh, the plurality of information is extremely important to them, and to a large extent this is achieved through social media. Uh, how do you propose that that information be available if there is some kind of global censorship where all of the states agree amongst themselves as to what information to censor away from the public sphere? Uh, just to clarify, we weren't talking about global censorship, we were talking about global greater levels of global cooperation among like-minded democracies to not only share information about external actors who were manipulating uh, social media and engaging in other kinds of interventionist policies uh, uh, to undermine democratic uh, institutions and principles, uh, but also to uh, take action in the form of sanctions, perhaps, against those countries uh, to, uh, you know, get them to understand there's no, you engage in that, you're going to pay, and you're going to pay a price. Um, we're not advocating censorship uh, uh, in any way, form, shape, or fashion, or at least I'm not. No, nor am I, but to look at it from a slightly different angle, I would, you know, some of you will remember, uh, even some of you who are not senior citizens like I am, you know, some years ago, Canada used to have something called Radio, uh, Radio Canada International. It was a shortwave system that broadcast around the world. We don't have that anymore, and I'm not sure a shortwave would be the way to go. But to your point about a multiplicity of sources, why a country like Canada cannot have a consciously created 
funded program that would be used to uh, send news broadcasts around the planet is beyond me. Doesn't mean people have to believe it, but by and large, it would be another source that would become available. Now the Yanks still do it with, I've forgotten what they've called it now, they, had a, they have several systems of doing it. The British Council used to do it. I think a lot of countries could make a real contribution to developing the multiplicity of sources if they consciously said to themselves, we're going to develop a worldwide program to disseminate news from our perspective, isolate it from the politicians, isolate it from any external pressure, try and find some way of making it the most cool, calm, dispassionate bit of news you possibly can, and maybe people in developing democracies, as you know, Fenn was saying, could take advantage of this. There are any number of ways we could do this, I think, fairly well, inexpensively. We can, we, we can do it on the internet, yep. but if, if you travel across the border and you want to watch CBC News, it's blocked. You have to, have, you have to use it, the internet. And, and, and it's blocked by internet service providers south of the border because we have rules and regulations that go to our respective broadcast policies about what you can what you can stream and what you can't and what you can access and where you can access it. And and so the I I mean I think it comes back to something you said, Dick, that, you know, greater openness is one of the great virtues of the internet, but it's not as open as you think it is when it comes to even getting content between democracies and, and, and you know you don't need to have an expensive infrastructure to promote Canadian and international news and values online. Well, thank you all so much for coming, and thank you, Fenn and Dick, for uh, sitting up here with me and breaking it down. I appreciate it. <laughs>